This morning, we are continuing a sermon series uh, that we've been in on Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And in this uh, sermon series, we've been looking at what Paul says to this early church community about how the cross is not only their hope for life after death, but it is actually the pattern of their life in this world, that we are to be a people who are shaped by the cross, who gain our definitions of what love is, of what success is, of what a genuinely flourishing human life is by looking uh, at the self-giving life and death of Jesus. And so this morning, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Amen. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of the brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, rivaler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Thank you, Holly. Well, this morning... I'd like to invite Willie up to preach uh, on 1 Corinthians chapter 5. No, uh, we do honestly uh, today come to what has to be one of the more difficult chapters uh, in the book of Corinthians, if not in the New Testament. Uh, it is a passage that, before I even begin to preach it, just reading it, uh, is offensive to our contemporary ears. Purging evil people from among you, handing people over to Satan. Uh, it is a passage uh, that does, at first glance, uh, cause offense to us uh, in our sensibilities. But do you know uh, that sometimes it is the offensive message uh, is the one that you most need to hear? It's the message that most uh, offends us, that has the power to change us, uh, even to save us. 
You know, imagine uh, for a minute uh, that you have stinky breath. I know that this is uh, an imaginative exercise. Nobody in this room certainly has breath uh, that stinks. But here's the thing. If you do, you wouldn't know it, right? How many times do you walk around and your breath is not so fresh and you don't know it? You do the thing where you, you know, breathe on your hand and try to smell it. But we can't smell our own breath. And so there's the chance that we are walking around offending people and we don't even know it. Maybe you notice that your friends start to take a step back when you talk. Maybe you notice that uh, your spouse is slightly less romantically inclined. But the chances are you don't know it if your own breath stinks. Unless somebody comes to you and says, brother, sister, I need to let you know something. Your breath smells. And of course, your first reaction, my first reaction, would be to be offended. It would be to be defensive, to say, no, it doesn't. It might be to attempt to treat my stinky breath uh, superficially. Maybe I pop an Altoid in. But what if, in this purely imaginative exercise of stinky breath, uh, you, in trying to deal with this odor, came to realize that it couldn't be dealt with superficially, and so you went to a doctor? And the doctor found that the odor in your breath was actually a sign of lung disease. It can actually be a symptom even of lung cancer. And it would have been an offensive message that when you got over yourself and got over the offense of the message that had the power to transform, perhaps even to save your life. Well, friends, uh, the world, in effect, has been trying to tell the church that our breath stinks uh, for quite some time. If you look at all of the research and surveys that have been done on how people outside of the church think about the people in the church, how the world around the church thinks of the church, the two uh, most often cited adjectives that are used to describe the life of the church, I could, we could do a guessing game. I think you would get it right in exactly two guesses. Um, they are that the Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. Right? Those are the two most cited descriptors of Christians by those who are not Christians, that we are oftentimes uh, judgmental and hypocritical. In other words, we have a tendency to deal uh, with the perceived sin in the world harshly while turning a blind eye to the sin within ourselves. We are abrasively judgmental uh, towards the outsider while being blindly permissive. Uh, of the insiders. We become, when we do that, uh, no different than anyone else uh, in the world. In this world, we all have a tendency to be protective of those that we view as inside our circle and judgmental of those we view as outside our circle, right? When somebody from our political party gets themselves in the headlines, we, we have a tendency to be charitable towards them. Well, they are just being misunderstood. When somebody of the opposite political party finds themselves in the headlines, well, they're finally getting exposed for who they really are, right? We have a tendency to focus our judgment on what Alan Jacobs calls the culturally repugnant other, those people that we think of as being outside of ourselves that are worthy of our judgment while being wildly permissive of our own faults and the faults of those in our circle. And Paul, uh, in this little section of 1 Corinthians, says that when we do that, we have gotten it precisely backwards. 
that that is not the way that it was ever meant to be in the church. In fact, we called to be a countercultural community should look towards the outsiders with the eyes of charity, love, grace, hospitality, and welcome, and look at ourselves in a way that holds one another to our calling to walk with Christ with integrity and wholeness and holiness. And so this uh, passage uh, that at first uh, gives offense and seems so strange to us is about precisely this thing. How do we deal with sin outside the church? And how do we deal with sin inside the church? First, how do we deal with sin outside the church? I think the key verse here is found in verse 12, where the apostle writes, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? What have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul says, It's not my business to go around judging those who are outside the church. You see, what he recognized is what is true of God's people and has been true forever is that God's people are called to live as a counterculture within the culture for the culture, right? That they are called to live, we are called to live in a way that is distinct from our neighbors for the sake of our neighbors, This has been the case uh, whether you're you're talking about Israel living among the Egyptians, whether you're talking about Israel living among their Canaanite neighbors, whether you're talking about the Corinthian church living with their Corinthian neighbors or us living with our neighbors. What he's saying is you, you don't hear the Israelites in Egypt judging the Egyptians for not living like Israelites. Right? It 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 he says it's unfair to go around uh, acting as the moral referee of the world when the rest of the world hasn't agreed to the rules that we are playing uh, our game by. And so he says, what do I have to do uh, with judging outsiders? That's not my concern. That's not my calling. That's not what I'm after. The church has never existed truly uh, as a moral majority in the world, but as a moral minority, a counterculture on behalf of the culture. And yet look uh, what Paul says. He references a previous letter that he's written to them in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since for that you would need to go out of the world. So what he's saying is that the distinctiveness of the Christian community isn't a distinctiveness of separation. Right? It's not a distinctiveness that says in order to, to pursue wholeness, in order to pursue holiness, that we are going to remove ourselves from life in our community, with our neighbors, in our schools, in our places of business. Right, Holiness within the church is defined by Christ-likeness. Right? The, the, our growing uh, in the image and love of Christ. And did Christ separate himself from the people around him, from the people he lived his life with? No, I mean, the the, the list of people that that are listed here, the sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, that sounds precisely like the group of people that Jesus spent most of his meals with, if you read the Gospels, right? He he lived his life with the greedy, those who, who hoarded what they had and were always on the lookout for more. That describes the tax collectors that Jesus spent so much time with, the sexually immoral, describes the prostitutes that Jesus seemed to gravitate towards. 
Right? So if, if growth in Christ means growth in Christ's likeness, then it, then it certainly doesn't mean separation from the people around us. Right? It means, as Jesus said, living in the world but not of the world. Right? Right up in the lives of our friends, of our neighbors, of our families, whether they know Christ or not, whether they share our beliefs or not, in a way that seeks their good and their blessing and ultimately their inclusion uh, in Christ. Our attitude uh, towards sinners outside the church is to be one of hospitality, welcome, and love. You know, I have a friend who uh, pastors a church in Los Angeles, and he tells the story of a friend of his, a member of his church, who moved into a new home. And in the course of meeting his neighbors, uh, he met one of his neighbors, uh, a man of about his age. And as they came to sharing a little bit of their life and a little bit of their story, the, the, this one man managed to mention that he was a Christian, that he was involved in a church. And what he didn't know about his neighbor was like many in uh, Los Angeles, this man was in the film industry. Um, but this man was a director of adult films. He was in the adult film industry. And this Christian man, desiring to be uh, friendly, said, oh, you're a director. What have you done? What, what movies have you made? Well, no, no, they're not... You know, they're not mainstream works, said the man somewhat sheepishly. He said, oh, well, I'm really into independent films. Maybe I've, maybe I've seen them. I really would love to. Maybe I could rent them, and I'd love to see some of your work. And, and his neighbor hung, looked down at the ground and said, well, you know, actually, I'm a, I'm a director of adult uh, entertainment. And this man laughed uh, without condemnation, without judgment, and said, okay, well, then I, I, you know, I'd, love to, I'd love to have you over for dinner and just get to know you. Uh, get, to, get to know who you are and, and get to know your story a bit. And that's precisely, I love that story because it does uh, demonstrate for us the way we are to relate to our neighbors with hospitality. Come to my house. Welcome to my home. Sit around my table. Love. Lack of judgment. Why do we lack that judgment? Because we, we relate to sinners outside the church as sinners inside the church, right? As people who recognize that we too share in the common human condition of brokenness, of weakness, of sin, of rebellion against God. And so who are we to look on anyone with a moment of judgment? Did you hear what those new members said the first thing they had to say to join the church? The very first vow they took I acknowledge myself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure. What kind of club requires you to admit something like that before you can join? Right, where the entrance requirement is simply a, a confession of your own frailty and weakness. To then turn around and look on anyone with the eyes of judgment is contrary to the very nature of what it means to be a Christian. So Paul says we're to relate uh, to the sin outside the world with love, grace, and a lack of judgment. But how are we to deal uh, with sin, ongoing sin, among the sinners uh, that make up the church? And that truly is the central point and concern of this passage. You see, Paul's uh, writing here kind of swirls around one particular incident uh, that has happened within the church. We're told, uh, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. 
For a man has his father's wife. So here's the situation. Uh, a member of their church has taken up uh, with uh, his, uh, we don't think his mother, but his stepmother, the former wife of his father. He has, it said, when it says he has her, this means either they were married or they were living together, but this was something more than a passing flirtation. Uh, they were now in a relationship with one another. You know, imagine the scene. Remember, this is an oral society. Most of these letters uh, would have been written to a church, would have been read out loud. And so you get to this moment, and it comes to, hey, I've heard that there's one of you who's taken up with his father's wife. And that would have been read out loud in this room, and they all would have known uh, who he was talking about. We don't think that the, the stepmom, the, the, the woman in question, was a member of the community because she's never mentioned, she's not addressed. It simply deals uh, with the man's situation. And Paul says of this situation that there's a type of immorality going on that's not even accepted among the pagans. Right? It's not, this is, uh, and we know this to be true. We've, we've got a, a, a great quotation from Cicero, one of the Roman philosophers, where he deals with this precise issue in, in the life of a Roman citizen. So that even the, the, the non-Christian philosophers and ethicists were against this kind of interfamily uh, sexual relationship. And Paul says that your lives have fallen short not only of the standard that God calls his people to, but even among your neighbors. Remember we've said that Corinth uh, was an incredibly sexually permissive society. It was a society that, uh, that was marked by kind of a libertarian sexual ethic where men frequented brothels uh, as though it were nothing, where they would go in and order a prostitute with the, all the casualness that we walk into a Starbucks and order a coffee. It was just a part of life that was not questioned. And Paul says into that, instead of standing out, right, as a, as a counterculture for the culture, instead of, instead of serving as a distinct community in order to show this broken community the way to life and wholeness and goodness, instead, you even outdone them in sexual immorality, right? And not only that, but instead of, instead of being saddened by it, you're arrogant and boasting about it, right? This was a community, and what we think was going on was that their attitude had become, because of the gospel, right, because we have this new supernatural insight about the salvation of our souls, we are free to do what we want with our bodies. We no longer have to be constrained by the ethics and morality of old-timey people, Right, those, those Old Testament ethical realities don't, don't apply to us anymore. That we're free to do what we want because, hey, we're, we've been set free. We know that one of the slogans that was popular among them, and this comes from uh, this same book, chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Right, because I've been forgiven, all things are now lawful for me. So instead of being a community, that was for one another to the point of helping one another in their ongoing fight and wrestling and struggling with sin, they became a, a community that actually encouraged one another uh, in sin, right? They didn't encourage people when they felt shame or guilt about their sin. They didn't this isn't about them uh, being gracious and restoring them and loving them, all of which the church should, of course, be about. This is about them cheering them on. And saying, hey, don't you think it's great that Steve has taken up with his, with his mother-in-law? What a free man. What a, what a great thing that we're no longer bound by old-fashioned ideas. And so Paul, 
Paul addresses the entire church, right? There's actually very little instruction here for the man himself. There's a whole lot written to the church as a whole. Because what he's saying is, church, you've betrayed this guy. When you have celebrated something that you should have been mourning, when you are cheering him in something that you should have been intervening in and confronting him on, you've become part of the problem. You've become just as complicit as he is in this. And so what Paul does is he urges them, he writes to them about what it means for them to move from being a culture that celebrates sin to being a culture that fights for one another and against one another's sin. Right, that's, as we said with our new members, that's so for one another that they have to stand against everything in one another's lives that detracts from the fullness of their humanity and the fullness of their walk with Christ. And so this is an important question, right? Remember, this church in Corinth is about the same age as ours. It's about a four-year-old church. And so what does it mean for us as it meant for them to be a church that has the kind of culture that fights against sin in one another's lives, right? Can you imagine what it would be to be a member of a community that while unflinchingly gracious, welcoming, and hospitable, endlessly merciful and tender towards sinners, was at the same time standing with you and for you against your addictions, against those darkest impulses of your own life, to be in a family where you knew that people really and truly did have your back in such a way that it was safe to be honest with them, safe to let down your guard, knowing that, that even if they were to say something hard to you, it would be for you and for your good and for your flourishing. Well, let's look at what Paul says makes for that kind of culture. The first thing is a culture committed to discipleship, right? You know, the, the balance of this passage is about what we might call church discipline, and we're going to talk about that. But discipline and discipleship come from the same root word, right? That they are both about this process of standing with one another, helping us grow as followers of Jesus, you know, Paul, remember that the church in Corinth had all kind of external threats to its life. They lived in the midst of a pagan empire. They, they lived in the, in the midst of an empire that at times was even murderous against them. They were a young and frail church in a world where they were constantly having the, the worship and loyalty of their hearts pulled in these different directions. And yet Paul says to them that the greatest threat to them is not from outside of them, but from within them. Right, and I truly do believe that this is the case for the American church today. Right, our greatest challenges aren't the, increasingly, the increasing secularization of our culture. It's not uh, the loss of, you know, perceived losses of religious liberty. It's not the threats that come from outside of us, from a culture that we feel at times estranged from. But it's the threat that comes from the, from the inside of us as we neglect what's most important. Which Jesus says that what's most important, his highest calling on the church is what sometimes is called the Great Commission. The calling uh, that we have to go, into, uh, <clears throat> to go into all the world, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. You know, that is, that's a description of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to be one who seeks to apply and to live out the teachings of Jesus in our lives, Right, to live as apprentices of Jesus, 
seeking to be molded more by him and his cross and his story and his teaching uh, than we are by the countless forces that seek to press in on us from different directions. And so what it means to take seriously this call to discipleship is to be a church where we take, our, take seriously the call to be followers of Jesus, to have our lives challenged and molded by him. Right, this again is to, to what, what Paul has said, that we're called to be a countercultural community in the midst of the world. But that poses a problem, doesn't it? Because, you know, if, if we're called to be this ethical and moral minority, distinct within the world, what do we do with the fact that most of the time we're not much better? Right? We know ourselves to be sinful. We know ourselves to be broken. Every sin that you can encounter in the world, you can encounter in here in the church. Right? Our marriages are just as messy and broken. Our, our hearts are just as prone to addiction. Sin in our lives is just as stubborn. So what does it mean to say you're called to be holy when we know that we're not holy? What does it mean to say we're called to be, to be distinct when we know that we're not all that distinct? Well, it doesn't mean perfection, right? Jesus doesn't call the church to perfection in our holiness. What he calls us to is a lifestyle of repentant faith, a lifestyle of repentant faith. What does that mean? It means that when we see sin in our lives, we repent, we, we, we turn our hearts we say, Jesus, yeah, you know what? I'm, you got me. I'm still a sinner. I'm still in need of your grace, still in need of your mercy. Amen. And we commit to walking in this lifestyle of repentance and faith, repentance and faith over and over again. The rule, you know, what it takes for us as a church to live this kind of life is for each one of us to live daily in fresh repentance. Right? We've already, I hate to pick on these new members, uh, but we've already admitted, those of you who joined the church, you've already admitted you're a sinner. Amen. What's the big deal about admitting it again tomorrow morning when you wake up Amen. and you go to God in prayer? What's the big deal about admitting it again to your spouse when you hurt them? What's the big deal about admitting it again to your kid when you lose your temper? Amen. Say, I'm sorry, dad's a sinner. I need Jesus. And so to live in that rhythm of repentance and faith is what it means for us to live as a community of disciples. And we have all sorts of things about the life of our church that we try to build that in so that it can come fresh and easy to you every day, right? As you, if, you do, if you participate in our daily prayer and Bible reading, there's a chance right there every day to confess your sin and to receive God's grace. If you're in a growth group, there ought to be a moment in every meeting of every group where there's a chance for you to check in and talk about how your week has been going, including what's been messy and hard about it through your own doing. Right? Every Sunday when we gather, there's a, there's a moment to confess our sins and to receive an assurance of pardon. Right? What it means is to live in this rhythm of repentance and faith. It requires a culture of discipleship. It requires a culture of empathy. Right? Look at what uh, Paul says there uh, in, <clears throat> where was it? Uh, there in verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Right? You're arrogant. You're puffed up. A phrase that we're used to hearing uh, about the Corinthian Christians. About this man's sin. Shouldn't you rather mourn? Right? The church should be a place where we mourn together over the effects of sin in one another's lives and in our own lives. Right? Jesus uh, said, blessed are those who mourn. 
right? There's something beautiful about being in a community where you don't have to pretend that everything is going okay in your life about being in a community where you don't have to get dressed up and put on a fake Sunday morning smile and come together and every time somebody asks you how you're doing, you simply say fine because it's easier than telling the truth. Right? There's something about being in a community where we can together mourn about the reality that we live in a broken world and that we are broken people. Right? There is an incredible power. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. But in having another person weep with you over the brokenness of your own life, to confess your sin to somebody, yeah, you know what, this is how bad it is. This is what's happened. And in that moment when you expect to feel judgment or condemnation or shame, instead to feel their arms around you and to feel the drops of tears on the back of your neck is they hold you and they mourn with you the effects of sin in your life because they know the effects of sin in their life. And together, you don't pretend it's okay, you don't pretend that something that's bad is good, but together you mourn your sin and you go to God together for grace. The church should be a place where it's free to mourn together the sin of our lives. Because next, Paul does go to talk about church discipline. And church discipline should never be done in the context, without the context of many and many tears shed. Tears of compassion and empathy. So he does go on uh, to talk about discipline when he says that we have to be a culture of courageous honesty. You know, uh, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, about 500 years ago or so, one of the pressing questions that our forefathers in the faith and the Protestant Reformation were wrestling with was the question of what does it mean to be a true church? Right? How can you tell if a church is true to its calling? And most of them identified two things, the right preaching of God's word and the right administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But a man named Martin Bucer uh, added a third, uh, what came to be known as Mark of the Church, which was the mark of church discipline. That for a church to be considered whole, for a church to be considered uh, healthy, that it has to preach the word of God, that it has to administer the sacraments that Jesus left to us, and it has to take seriously God's call towards walking with integrity, wholeness, and even holiness, even when that meant standing against sin among its members even when that meant having hard conversations among uh, its members. And so church discipline comes up here in 1 Corinthians 5 because it really is about the question, what do you do when a Christian stops repenting? Right? If, all that, if what it means to be a disciple is to walk in repentance and faith, to acknowledge our sin, to turn together for grace, what do you do when somebody just says no? What do you do when somebody, instead of walking by repentance, their hearts get hardened in sin, right? We know that that can happen, that sin has this hardening effect in our lives. So what do you do when somebody, instead of repenting, digs in their heels and says, no, I'm not repenting, right? Because church discipline, you know, when we start talking about church discipline, I know that for, for many of us, the, the hairs on the back of your neck start to stand up a little bit. Right? And you get, you get images of, of men in bad, stodgy suits uh, coming and kicking you out of church. 
or you have images of you know, the Amish expelling somebody from their town because they like, smoked a cigarette or something. That is not what this is about. Right? Church discipline is not, what do you do with the teenage girl who gets pregnant out of wedlock? What do you do uh, with the man uh, who gets addicted to pornography and with sorrow walks away from it? What do you do with the affair? This isn't about what you do with sinners when they sin because we know what we do in that situation, right? We invite them with us to, to repent together and to enjoy God's grace. This is about what do you do when someone just keeps going and instead of acknowledging it, they just press into it more and more. And so to be the church, to be a church where we can truly and genuinely grow and walk in integrity together, it essentially means that you're a church that is willing to say hard things to people when they need to hear it, and that you're willing to say it louder when they stop hearing it, right? So that if, if it's not able to get dealt with in a personal conversation, it gets dealt with uh, with, with a little larger circle. Then it gets dealt with uh, with church elders, pastors, coming together and saying, we love you too much to let you keep doing this. We love you too much to sit by and watch you throw your life away. We believe that you matter to God and you matter to us. And we're not going to sit here and watch you kill yourself. Whether it's intervening in the life of an, of an addict whose addiction is literally killing them, whether it's intervening in the life of a man like this one whose ongoing persistence and celebration of this relationship is causing his own soul harm and is causing the, the church disrepute, it means intervening and saying we're not going to keep pretending that everything's okay when it's really not okay. And in our context, this can mean several things. It can mean... Uh, entering into a, uh, conversations where you, where you continue to pursue them towards repentance. When people are not willing to do that, it can mean for a season saying you're not free to, to come to the sacraments and saying you can't keep, you know, if, if the, remember what I say before we come to communion, you come as a sinner, repentant, coming to Jesus for grace. And so it can come to a place where you say, you know what, you say you're doing that, but in your ongoing lack of repentance, you're not. And so we're, gonna, we're not going to pretend that everything's fine when it's not fine. So it means a courageous level of honesty uh, as sinners with sinners. And then finally, it means a culture of redemptive hope. You know, the hope of discipleship, the hope of discipline, the hope of any of these things is always for the good and restoration of this person towards Christ. Paul wrote this as hard as it is in the hope that this man would be welcomed back into this church, whole and healthy and restored to God, restored to them. Right, that's what's going on here with these difficult verses. You are to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Right, this is, this is weird language. It's, it sounds odd to our ears, but essentially what he's saying He's saying, when you, when you send this man out and you say you're no longer going to be able to carry on as though everything's fine, that he would go out and feel the weight and consequence of the sin in his life, that feeling that consequence, he might return repentantly to the church, like the prodigal son in the far country when he's eating the slop far from his father's house, and he looks up and it says he comes to his senses and says, I should go back. I should go back to my father's house. I should go back and receive his mercy and his grace because I know I'll find it there. That's Paul's hope here, that this man 
uh, will be restored, forgiven, and brought back. You know, we, uh, this story ends uh, with a bit of hope. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, the sequel to 1 Corinthians, uh, when Paul writes a follow-up letter years later. Chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 5. We think uh, virtually all the commentators agree that these verses are talking about this man, this man that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs." Hear what he's saying. He's saying we're piecing together a conversation. It's like listening in on one end of a telephone. But what he's saying is, guys, he repented. Bring him back. Don't make it hard on him. Don't bring him back in as a second-class citizen. Don't bring him back in and constantly remind him about this. Welcome him back with joy because it worked. We were not outwitted by the forces of evil. We were not naive. We employed a strategy that was given to us by Jesus. And it worked redemptively to bring this guy back to his Savior, back to the church, you should celebrate with him. This man is not asked to wear a scarlet A for the rest of his days. He's not asked to live in the back row of the church. He is welcomed back in with open arms into the life of the community and into the celebration uh, of that life. Would we be a church that takes grace with such abundant joy, that receives and extends grace freely? May we also be a church that repents daily and gladly, and when one of us, maybe it's me, when one of us gets too stubborn or hard-hearted or stupid in the midst of our own sin, let's love one another enough. Let's be courageous enough and brave enough to say the hard things, to have the hard conversations, and to welcome one another back, to call one another back to our Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that we would be a community that takes sin seriously because we take grace seriously. Lord, would we be a community that doesn't fixate on the sins of our neighbors, but looks uh, with bold honesty at the sins among ourselves, that's willing to look honestly at our sins because we know, we know that you, Lord Jesus, have looked long and hard at our sin. You've seen it, and you've laid down your life for ours so that we might know your welcome, your restoration, and your wholeness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.